0: John chapter two is where we are going to be continuing to walk through this gospel and uh, I love how uh, the disciple John has gifted us God has gifted us through John this account of the good news and the good news about Jesus and and I love how John is not writing from Uh, from the balcony. He's not riding from the farthest seat away. He is riding from the front row seat, all that he has come to see and know of Jesus. And so I love that John, the disciple, he wants us to get a very clear, like crystal clear message that there's no mistaking when you read this gospel, that there's a crystal clear message. And he tells us John chapter 20, verse 31, what that message is. He said that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so everything we read about in this gospel, everything that we walk through about it all supports this purpose. And that is, is that the world would know and the world would hear that Jesus Christ is God. And that through a personal relationship with him, it is the only way you can experience life and life to the full, that eternal life. And so as we walk through this gospel, John is laying out very clearly, unmistakably, Jesus is God. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Down in verse 14, he said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God. And that he came to bring light and he came to bring life and he came to bring light to a spiritually dark world. And he came to give life to a spiritually dead world that the Bible teaches us that anyone living apart from a personal relationship with Jesus is is at enmity with God and is walking in spiritual darkness and spiritual death. But Jesus has come. Here's the good news to bring light and to bring life to all people, to everybody. And so John continues, he introduces us to John the baptizer and John the Baptist, his whole mission in life was prepare the way, prepare the way, and then get out of the way. And John the baptizer says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he baptizes Christ. Christ didn't need to be baptized, but again, he's the perfect example. And so this kind of launches his earthly ministry that is somewhere between three and three and a half years. And as soon as John, the baptizer says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, he had his own disciples. And one of those was John, the one who wrote this gospel. And so John, the disciple, was a follower of John, the Baptist, but, but he unhitched his wagon, so to say, from John, the baptizer and hitched his wagon to Jesus to follow Jesus. And another follower of John, the Baptist was named Andrew. And so they spent unhurried and unhindered time with the savior of the world. And their natural outflow response was Andrew went and got his brother, Simon Peter, and he brought him. And then Jesus calls Philip, another disciple. And then Philip, after spending unhurried and unhindered time, goes and tells Nathaniel and then Nathaniel comes. And so you have this now kind of band of disciples following Jesus and they have just wrapped up their first miracle in Cana. And I think it's a good reminder anytime we see miracles in the Bible, Any time we see miracles, there for two reasons. One, Jesus always meets a specific need. There's always a need that needs to be met. But two, every miracle displays that He is God. And again, that's John's whole purpose, that the miraculous concrete and solidify the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. And today's main idea of our text is that Jesus Christ, our resurrected king, is worthy of our worship. That's the hope as we walk out from this text is that we walk away. That knowing and believing with all our hearts that Jesus Christ, our resurrected king, is worthy of worship. Why? Because he's the only one who can bring spiritual life why? Because he's the only one who can bring spiritual light. Why? Because he is the only one who has the power to do anything about our sin issue and our sin debt that he is worthy. And because his perfect life, his death, his burial and his resurrection, he's worthy of worship. Now, here's the thing. I say that word worship and all kinds of things come into our minds. Right. We're going to worship. And typically that means we're going to sing. But I think we all know that worship is way bigger than that and way more than that. Matter of fact, every single person is a worshiper. Every single person, whether you're here in the room or just some random person that's walking in downtown Memphis right now and all around the world. Everybody is a worshiper. Why? Because worship is when you as an individual acknowledge the worth of somebody or something in your life. That is worship. And in a sense, everybody is a worshiper because every person lives their lives in such a way that acknowledges that someone or something is of primary worth in your life. And so let's just do like kind of a quick quiz and we can just answer in our hearts and and let's answer these questions together. Who or what do you find yourself sacrificing for? Who or what do you find yourself devoting yourself to? Who or what do you find yourself investing the majority of your time and energy and effort to? Who is it or what is it that if we were to write our lives in the sky... If the truth were be told, what would be the, the thing or the person that that we would value and treasure more than anything else in the world? And what happens is, is that Jesus alone is worthy of the preeminent primary place of worship in our lives. We're all worshipers, but yet there is a throne in every single heart. And the question is, who's sitting on the throne of our hearts. And there's only one who's worthy to sit in that throne. And that's King Jesus. And what happens, and it can happen very subtly as we're going to read, but what can happen is, is that slowly, but surely, and, and, and after a little time, it is quite possible to begin to exchange the created things And place them in the place of the the throne that is only belongs to one. And that is to King Jesus. That it's possible to have Christ in our lives, but not in the throne of our life. And so this text is going to help us and and encourage us and challenge us in our relationship with the Lord today. And so I want us to look at John chapter 2. Let's look at verse 12 and verse 13. Now, Christ, again, just wrapped up his miracle in Cana and verse 12. The Bible says that after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now I think this is just kind of kind of neat to see is that, okay? Jesus and his disciples like they were just in Cana. But the Bible says that they went down to Capernaum. But Capernaum is actually north of Cana. And then, and then the Bible says that it was the time of Passover. And so they're in Capernaum now, which, by the way, is going to be the home base of Jesus's earthly ministry. They're in Capernaum. And the Bible says they went up to Jerusalem. But Capernaum is actually north of Jerusalem. And so that kind of messes with my head a little bit because I'm like, if I'm going south, I'm not saying I'm going up somewhere, but that's what he's saying in Capernaum. They're going up to Jerusalem by going south to Jerusalem. And the reason why is because Jerusalem is a mountain city and it sits about 2,500 feet. And no matter where you are in Palestine, wherever you're traveling from, if you're going to Jerusalem, you are going up. You're ascending. That's why in in the book of Psalms, there's a a section of Psalms called, it's Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. It's called the Psalms of Ascent. And the reason they're called Psalms of Ascent is because this was like the Hebrew pilgrims playlist on a road trip. And they would sing these songs as a family and they would play these songs as a family and they they would sing them as they're ascending up to Jerusalem to the mountain city. That's why they're Psalms of Ascent. And so now they are heading to Jerusalem for the big feast, the Passover. This is, this is the big one. In verse 13, the Bible says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons. And I want us to hear this and let this ring out in our ears. Take these things away. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is cleansing the temple and for many of us this may be a familiar story a familiar scene many of us will will, will be rem, kind of remember uh, the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry it's Passover and he makes his way to Passover and the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday there are all the crowd shouting Hosanna. And so he comes into what we call the Passion Week. And where does he go? He goes straight to the temple. And what does he see? He sees that his temple that has been created and designed for a purpose and to bring glory to him has turned into something that it was never designed to be. And the Bible says he drove them out that they made this temple a den of thieves and a den of robbers so he it's it's change. And so not only did Jesus cleanse the temple on the final week of his earthly ministry, but he also cleanses the temple at the outset of his ministry. Like he, he's just getting started and he is he is now in in Jerusalem for the Passover and he is he is in the temple. And so it's Passover. On a normal non-Passover time, there'd be about 25,000 people in Jerusalem. Now there's probably five times that 150,000 people in Jerusalem. People are coming from all over the known world. If you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you had to be there if you were a Jew. You had to go. But every Jew longed to go to the mountain city to celebrate Passover. It was a dream to be able to go to Jerusalem and to celebrate the Passover And so as they came and you imagine as part of the Passover experience and celebration that there would be animal sacrifices and offering of worship to the Lord. And so depending on where you're traveling from, a lot of people opted not to bring their animals or sacrifices with them. And and I agree, like if you I love my dog and we took our dog to Florida with us over Christmas to see family and uh, I I love my dog, but it was a burden like like that's a that's a that's a chore and so we love our animals, but road trips with our animals not so much. But but for them, they 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 come, and many of them because they don't have their animal, they purchase an animal in Jerusalem, and not only that, that they would have. Uh, They would have temple and instructors or or, uh, they would have inspectors and and people would bring their sacrifice. They would come all this way and the inspector would look at their sacrifice and be like, "Mm, no, I see a little blemish here on the ear. That's not going to work. You need to buy one of one of our animals here. And what they were is they were gouging people with prices. And so everybody who went, they also had to pay a temple tax or a Tyrian shekel. And so again, you have people coming from all over the known world. This isn't the currency where they live, and so they go to exchange their money for the temple currency or a Tyrian shekel. And what happens when they do that is they they gouge them again. We're talking like twenty percent interest on this exchange rate. And what happened is just corruption and self interest and wanting to make a dollar and and just like all the the like like self. Um, the the, the self-desire to make money off and benefit off of other people coming to worship God, like that's a sick thing. That's exactly what was happening in this picture. And so it's important for us to see in the picture that this, when Jesus saw this, it absolutely grieved his heart. So much so that Jesus fashioned a whip made with cords, most likely these were leather, uh, leather pieces from the animals that were there and everything. And he, and he fashions this whip and he, he, he pushes all of the oxen, all the sheep, all the pigeons, he pushes all of them out. He goes to money changing tables and he flips them over because what was designed to be a place of worship and set apart and glorify God and honor him had become just the opposite. And as he sees this and as he walks through this, his, his heart is grieved because what happens is what was designed initially at some point down the road to be a service to the people had been changed in exchange for people to make money off of others who are coming to the temple. And Jesus, in his righteous anger, makes makes the cord and flips the tables over and pushes all of the animals out. And he says that they have made it a house of trade. Now, Jesus is the perfect, the perfect son of God. He is, he is the lamb without spot or blemish, the true Passover lamb. Jesus was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And so Jesus, it's important for us to know, Jesus didn't lose control right here. Jesus didn't all of a sudden just get in the flesh because he is God in the flesh. But what we see is a righteous anger. And my hunch is you probably somewhere along the way have experienced that. That when somebody does something that demeans or hurts someone close to you. Someone that you love desperately and dearly. And you see them being mistreated. You see them taking advantage of My hunch is there is out of that pure love that there is a righteous anger that comes out of that. And so Jesus is coming through and he is he is taking over what belongs to him. So as we look at this scene, Jesus, with all authority and all the power in heaven on earth, says, take these things out, take these things out. Verse 17, his disciples remembered That it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remember, they had these psalms, they would sing these psalms. This is Psalm 69, it's a psalm of David. And so we see that the temple, that physical temple was a special place to the heart of God. And so what was designed to be set apart to bring glory of God, slowly but surely. And isn't this how it happens? Slowly but surely as the people take their focus around the purpose and design of what it was for, it became something it was never intended to be. Now, as believers today, I am thankful that we are not bringing sacrifices to, to our church services anymore. That, that, that the, the, the spotless Passover lamb, the lamb of God, has been our, is our once and for all sacrifice. But in the Old Testament, they would bring they would bring these these animals and even for the Jewish people. And even today, the Jews feel that the temple mount where the temple once stood is for them. It's the holiest place in their religion, so to say. And so they felt that, that the presence of God was 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 special and specifically on that place. And so they have a they had a that that, that was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But we praise God live in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that we live in a post-resurrection day, and I praise the Lord for that. And so it's with this new covenant, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that the Bible teaches us that when a person repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus, and Jesus alone for their salvation, His Holy Spirit, His presence dwells in us. In other words, we believers have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. What a great encouragement and challenge for us today. That, that, the, that the word of God, that as a believer, God has gifted us with his presence to indwell our lives. Our body's now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so your body has been bought with a great price. Glorify God with your body. And so as we think about, as believers, this temple, right? Walking in relationship with God, his Holy Spirit indwelling us. The question must come is what does Jesus observe in our lives and in our hearts? Like the, the 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 picture here is, is you know, we don't necessarily have doves and pigeons flying around in our hearts, right? But we do allow and can allow things to creep in that do not honor and glorify the Lord. Sometimes they go by the name of uh, disobedience. Sometimes they go by the the name of of gossip. Sometimes they go by the name of hatred. Sometimes they go by the name of um, secret sin. Sometimes they go by different names, but it's these things that just as in the temple in the Old Testament had come in and corrupted what the temple was designed to be, these things can creep into our lives and they can begin to turn our hearts into what it's never designed to be. In this text also, I mentioned that there are pigeons in the house and sheep in the house and oxen in the house. And those aren't necessarily bad things, but they become bad things when they're in the wrong place. Because, see, what had happened once was to be a service to the people. What happened is it became encroaching closer and closer onto the temple courts, closer and closer into the temple courts, closer and closer to the place that was reserved for worship. And what happened was these pigeons and oxen, they landed in a place that they were never designed to be in. And so just like oxen and sheep aren't necessarily a bad thing, they can be good things. But sometimes good things can creep into our lives And good things can end up in a place that they were never designed to be. And perhaps the Holy Spirit today is trying to teach us as believers in the room is this is what needs to be taken out. Have we exchanged what belongs or who belongs in the throne of our lives with some created thing? I love the 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 like learning about the heart, the, the human body is an amazing thing. God creating it. Think about this. Your heart right now will beat around 115,000 times today. 115,000 times. Your heart will pump somewhere in the neighborhood of 2000 gallons of blood through your body. Like it's safe to say that the heart is probably like the control room uh, of, your, of your life. And so figuratively speaking, spiritually, your heart is also the control room for your feelings, for your emotions, for the decisions of your will. I want to I want to I want to kind of paint a picture for us this morning, uh, and I want this to symbolize our hearts. Okay, now here's the thing about a heart. A heart can only you can only put so much in your heart. All right. And so, so this, this jar is going to represent our heart and what we fill our lives, what we fill our hearts with. Okay. And so, so I've got a couple different sizes of rocks. All right. I'm going to start with the littlest rocks first, and, uh, I'm going to open these up and these smaller rocks here, these smaller rocks are going to represent little things in our lives, little things that can be big things. They're not relationships, but they're things in our life. And so these rocks can represent uh, our jobs. They can represent our school. They can represent the hobbies that we enjoy doing. They can represent any number of things. These things is if we're talking about priorities in our life or things we devote our heart to list literally could represent a phone. Depending on how much time your finger spends scrolling a screen, like, like you are giving your heart, your devotion, your attention to that, arranging your life around that. There's all kinds of different things. We can fill our heart with these little things. And so, so it takes up space in our heart. But then there's, a, there's another sized rock, and these are going to represent relationships. And I think we'd all agree relationships are more important than any task or anything. And so with these uh, with these relationships these are these are really important relationships and so this might be uh relationships with your friends and so that's a big one so that's very important that, that 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 that's a big part of our heart it might be uh your relationship with your spouse it might be relationship with your brothers and sisters or your siblings depending on where you work it might be your relationship with your with your manager or your boss or maybe you're the manager or boss and you got these relationships but life is real, right? Does everything ever go as planned? No, it never does. And so, what happens is other things begin to fill up our lives that maybe we never intended to, right? And so, this is going to be uh, this is going to be representative of all the other things that end up in our lives, and we fill our hearts with them, and we fill our hearts up to the brim. And for many of us, it could be that this. This represents our heart, but there is one relationship that I've not talked about yet. Haven't even introduced it yet, but that is the single most important relationship you will ever have in your life. And that is your personal relationship with King Jesus. And so this, this is going to represent this biggest rock, this most important life giving relationship that we have. And what happens is, is we can fill our lives and our hearts with so many things. And so many good things, so many worthy things. But yet we fill our lives up so much to the point where there is no room for the resurrected Jesus. Like there's no room for this most vital, life-giving, important relationship that we will ever experience in our lives. And so what happens is Jesus gets edged out of our lives, gets edged out of the throne of our lives. And it's not the exact picture, but isn't this what's happening in the temple? Think about it. There is this design for the temple. It is designed to be set apart. It is designed to be a place of worship for the Lord, that this is a place where his presence is going to shine and manifest in a tangible and real way. And that this was a sacred place that was set apart to bring glory to God. But yet he walked into the temple and he found that this great exchange had happened and all these Good things had had taken over an area in space where it never designed to be. And all of a sudden, the genuine, true worship of God was being was being over was being was was not even being heard because of the, the haggling going on outside in the temple courts. And so it could be that this describes your heart. But I want to I want to show a second example of a heart as well. And, and again, for the believer, for someone who has repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as the Lord of the lives, we begin with the most important relationship in our lives. And we begin by placing our focus in our trust and investing in our personal relationship with God. And we do have these other relationships, right? Because relationships are important. Relation, so those relationships with your friends are important. Those relationships with your siblings are important. Those relationships with your children are important. Those relationships with your, with your boss, your manager, those kind of things, those relationships are important and life is real, isn't it? Like that stuff, just those little things aren't going to just go away. And, and again, some of them are very good things. They're good things. And so we, we are going to have those things in our lives. We're going to have them. We're going to have them. And and we're also going to have those things that we never planned for. We're going to have those things that creep in. And we're going to be like, oh, my goodness, where did that come from? What happened? And so we start filling our lives and our heart. No doubt will be full. But the thing is this. Is that because we have placed King Jesus in the rightful place in our hearts and our lives, giving our worship to him and him alone, what happens is then he he informs every other thing that we put in our life. And if we were to measure thing, everything out specifically, did you know that this one that has our relationship with Jesus is the primary? Did you know that, that I was not able to put as much stuff in here as this one? And could it be that we allow so many good things to go on in our lives that we neglect the best thing? And maybe we need to let go of some good things so we can focus on the best thing. And so the question is this, which one describes your heart? And and I'm bringing my heart with yours as we lay open this word. Christ has come and has our hearts become something it was never intended to be or never intended to do. And could it be that the Holy Spirit today through his presence would be saying this? There are some things that need to go. Jesus says, take these things out take these things out. The word continues in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? I think it's interesting because they didn't just seize him. They didn't just grab on top of him, tackle him and arrest him. I believe because they sensed an authority with him. That if somebody came in your house and flipped everything over, like you're probably going to have a response to that, but yet they appear to have a a, a, a sense of awe in the authority of who Jesus is. And so they're asking him verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, they were completely missing what, Jesus was trying to teach them. I destroy this temple. We've been building this temple for 46 years. They had started the construct the temple 16 years before Christ, the earthly, uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem. And, and matter of fact, if you go to 70 AD, when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, they were still working on it. And so they're sitting there and they're missing what Jesus is trying to teach them. They're missing it. They're missing the truth that when John says in John one, one, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh in verse 14 and dwelt among us. That word, dwelt, means tabernacled. It's the same word as temple. And what Jesus is trying to teach them is listen, don't miss this big picture point. I am the temple. Because in me, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. And they miss the glory of God on full display in front of their lives. John 1.14 again says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so do we acknowledge the presence of God In every area of our lives, every day of our lives, the glory of God was right before them and they were missing it. So verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the Jews missed it and evidently the the disciples kind of missed it (laughs) until the tomb was empty. And then they're like, oh, I remember when Jesus said that. That you destroy the temple and on the third day, he's going to rise it up again. And it's all clicking. And for the disciples, the resurrection changed everything. King Jesus is worthy of our worship. So we remove barriers that hinder our worship. King Jesus is worthy of our worship. So we live in light of the resurrection. This is what the disciples did. The resurrection changes everything. Everything. Ed Stetzer says it this way. The gospel is the good news that God, who is more holy than we can imagine, looked upon with compassion people who are more sinful than we could ever possibly admit. And he sent Jesus into history to establish his kingdom and reconcile people in the world to himself. Jesus, whose love is more extravagant than we can ever measure, came to sacrificially die for us so that by his death and his resurrection, we might gain through his grace, what the Bible defines as new and eternal life. That the empty tomb proves that not only does Jesus Christ alone have the power to forgive ten, sin, but Jesus Christ has the power to keep us, those who have placed their faith and their trust in him. Because of the empty tomb, these disciples turn the whole world upside down. There's an old hymn that says, because he lives, I can face. Anybody know? Tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know who holds the future. And so the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything about our lives. And so he is worthy. We remove the barriers. He's worthy. We live in light of the resurrection that death and hell and the grave do not have the last laugh in our life. And thirdly, is we determine in our hearts to respond to him rightly. Look at these last couple of verses. Verse 23, the Bible says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Say, what is going on? Many believed. Our students took part in D-NOW weekend and, and had some great teaching sessions there. And the speaker uh, had, had four chairs that he talked about through the, through the message. And basically, everybody's sitting in one of these chairs. And he walks through this first chair, which is the chair of a believer, like someone who has repented of their sin, trusted in Jesus Christ, and they are living a life by God's grace for his glory, for his mission. The second chair was the unbeliever. That this is a, a person who we would say is spiritually dead. They're at enmity with God. That they do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. And there, there's that second chair. And then there's this third chair. And this third chair was, was, was a believer, but yet their life looks more like the second chair than it does the first chair. And God in his grace and his conviction is, is calling, calling those back who may have wondered or struggled or kind of gotten away from the Lord and to repent and rest in his grace and to pursue him with all their hearts. And they get back in the number one chair. But there's a fourth chair. And this fourth chair is where the many who believed are. That fourth chair is what basically is called an unsaved Christian. Which by definition does not even exist. But it is someone that has an intellectual, superficial, kind of shallow, intellectual belief in who Jesus is. But the journey... Has never made it from their head to their heart. Where they have surrendered to King Jesus as the Lord of their lives. And so what's happening in this text is that many believe. But they, it is not genuine saving faith. It was shallow. It was like the parable of the soils. How the seed fell on rocky soil. And it was there for a minute. And then it, it, did, it never lasted. It wasn't an enduring type of belief. It was fake. It was all intellectual and no heart, no change. Jesus changes us from the inside out. And so Jesus knows our hearts. So Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows where we're at. He knows if we're here and he knows if we're here. And he wants every single person to move from here to here. And here's the beauty. We don't have to try to hide anything or cover up anything because he knows everything about us. And here's the good news and loves us even still. Amen. Loves us even still. And so perhaps the encouragement to you is for the believers in the room is that maybe you have allowed your life to look more like this, but you have lost what you have been designed to do. And that is to live for his glory and to live for his mission mission, and that you would prioritize your personal love relationship and worship of him. And then in light of that relationship, you organize everything else in your life. And that shapes everything else in your life. It allows what you bring and allow in your heart. It shapes everything. And so it could be that that the Lord this morning is saying these things need to go. Take this out. And then my, all, my encouragement also is to the one who may not have a personal relationship with Jesus and to just say this is where the words of John three sixteen just ring through for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's the whole reason John wrote his gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you would have life in his name. So if you're here today and it's perhaps been all intellect and there has been no transformation. Then my encouragement is that perhaps today the Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart's door. And could be saying, I know you know facts and I know you could pass a Bible quiz, but I don't know you. I want a relationship with you. And so again, what does that look like? Acknowledging your sin, repenting and turning from your sin and trusting in the finished work of Jesus to be the Lord and the Savior of your life. And he came that we may have life and life to the full. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this story in the Bible. This historical account that broke your heart, be it you use it to teach us. You use you use this this historical actual account to teach us something, even in this New Testament age. We're in this church age is that as believers who have a personal relationship with you, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that there are many good things in this world and many right things in this world, but good things become wrong things when they're in the wrong place in our lives. There is one chair, there is one throne room in our heart and there is only one who deserves to sit in that and that is you, King Jesus. And so God, forgive us when we fill our lives to the brim so much so, God, that we edge you out of the place that you were designed to rule and reign. So God, show us these areas. I pray for deep conviction over our lives and that we would turn from those things and rest in your grace and in your care and in your love and live in that resurrection life that you have defeated death, hell, and the grave. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And Father, I do pray if there's anybody here who doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that today would be the day of salvation. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I wanna invite you to stand with me as we wrap up our time this morning and, and we'll have pastors here down front. If, and if you would want somebody just to pray over you or talk with you or anything like that, we would love to be able to, to pray over you and encourage you in that way. Uh, The altar is always open. There's freedom in this place. But here's what I would ask just for all of us is perhaps there is something God is trying to teach us today. And so that our hearts would be open and responsive to how ever he would want to lead in our lives this morning.